Welcome to The Term, a podcast by Law360 about the Supreme Court. My name is Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington. And joining us from our New York studio is co-host and Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. I'm pretty good. I'm excited uh, to see the court coming back next week from its fairly long winter recess. Um, They've been gone, like, what, three weeks or something? It's been quite a while, you know, they've been all around the country receiving awards and giving talks and things, and now they have to do the actual work of, you know, being Supreme Court justices. Yeah, and I mean, while it was awesome, like, it gave us, I I feel like, a good opportunity to kind of look into some, like, behind-the-scenes stories and talk about things that, like, we would normally maybe not get the chance to talk about over the last few weeks. I'm, like, super excited to kind of hear some new arguments and get back into the groove of things and see what opinions are like coming down the road for the Supreme Court. Right. I mean, it seems like they have kind of a lot of work to do because they've only released, you know, something like four opinions so far on the merits this term. Um, I think they had, you know, close to doubled that by this time uh, last year. So uh, yeah, they have their work cut out for them in, in handing down some of these these things and i potentially will see something on monday um you know they're they come back for their their friday conference tomorrow where they'll be you know voting on cases it looks like their dockets filled up through the rest of the arguments this term so i don't know that they'll feel the need to like put out one of those friday orders lists that we love when you know we find out at five o'clock that they've taken up five new cases on a friday (laughs) so potentially they'll spare (laughs) us and 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 hand them down monday morning but uh yeah well we'll see if there's any uh you know opinions in the works there yeah and they're jumping into kind of a busy week i know they have at least they have four arguments um scheduled for next week we're going to be talking about three of those kind of giving some brief previews as we kind of get back into our regular groove too um here on the podcast yeah how do we do this again <laughs> it's been a while <laughs> well so jimmy you i think um you've been looking into one of the first ones that's up um involving a pipeline right yeah, so I mean, there is the possibility on you know at nine thirty of you know additional cases being added to the uh, court's docket, um, and potentially even uh, an opinion or two. Um, we'll, we'll see. But after that, you're right. There, the first oral argument of the of the week will be in a case called U.S. Forest Service um, versus Cow Pasture River Association, um, and this one involves the fate of you know a seven billion dollar gas pipeline. It's a, you know, a 600-mile pipeline that's being built by the Dominion Energy uh, Company um, and its subsidiaries, and it's going to run from Clarksburg, West Virginia, to uh, the Carolinas. But the problem is that part of the course, part of the route of this pipeline, uh, crosses over the Appalachian National Scenic Trail, which, according to the Fourth Circuit, is part of the National Park System. So um, it basically comes down to this law called the Mineral Leasing Act, and that's a law that generally governs the transportation of, you know, mineral like oil or, or liquid natural gas across um, federal lands, and so it allows the government to give, uh, you know, permits for some of those infrastructure projects, except on um, parts of the national park. Uh, uh, system. So the fact that the Fourth Circuit held that the Appalachian Scenic Trail is part of that system, they said that the uh, Forest Service was not allowed to permit um, uh, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline Company um, to to traverse that that terrain. So it's not even a matter of like 
going through some more environmental reviews or going through some additional hurdles to to get the permit. This is just like a sheer no-no if it's considered a part of the national park system. Well, they did get snagged up on some environmental reviews um, that the Fourth Circuit took an issue with. There was like a an interesting <laughs> um, uh, quote in the lower court's opinion that said that not even the Lorax would have been as, you know, something as uh, 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 not thinking about the, the trees as much as the, the Forest Service had in this case. But um, this case doesn't involve those other tangential issues to the case. This one's just about this whole issue of the Mineral Leasing Act. Um, So the government, which is appealing the case along with the pipeline uh, company, is basically arguing that, um, you know, the, the Appalachian National Scenic Trail is not part of the national park system in the sense that it should be excluded from, you know, this energy infrastructure project they say it's a trail it's not land it's a footpath and that does not convert it into you know a, 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 another national park under the under the administration of the national park service that this exception to the mineral leasing act was meant to protect arguing a footpath is not land seems a little bit like hair splitting to be quite honest <laughs> Well, that's kind of what the conservation groups say in in response to those arguments. They're they're like, well, it actually is land. It's the land beneath your feet, and they call the the um, the government's arguments an elusively metaphysical distinction <laughs> that is inconsistent with uh, the relevant statutes and federal regulations. But you know, elusive medical metaphysical distinctions can make quite. Uh, a practical difference in a lot of these environmental cases, and I think you know, to a lot of the textualists on the Supreme Court, they will be taking a, you know, a fine uh, tooth comb to this uh, Mineral Leasing Act to see, you know, just how um, the, uh, the the case should play out and whether or not the, uh, the developers should get the green light for this, for this giant pipeline, which could, you know, in their eyes, uh, bring in a lot of cold, hard cash. Um, and according to them, uh, electrical savings um, to customers in the, in the Carolinas. Definitely one to watch. I'll, I'll be watching it on Monday. Um, also on Monday uh, is another kind of very high stakes, high value case um, before the Supreme Court that's been on my radar, um, known as Opati versus Sudan. Uh, now, this is a terrorism victim case um, involving those uh, who were killed or injured or, or their families, um, you know, of, of U.S. employees killed or injured in a, in a pair of embassy bombings um, in 1998. Um, these uh, occurred in in Kenya and in Tanzania, um, and they were, you know, orchestrated by Al Qaeda. And the victims and the families, though, have sued Sudan in D.C. federal court for allegedly giving support to Al Qaeda in the years right before these bombings. Um, and the district court actually gave a, a ten point two billion dollar default judgment to the victims. Um, which included uh, $4.3 billion worth of punitive damages. Um, but the D.C. Circuit kind of shaved off the punitive damages. And, you know, this has brought us to, to where we are. Um, you know, it's, it's been this winding case. Um, Sudan's been trying to overturn the entire judgment. There's been, like, cross petitions for cert in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and the victims have obviously been trying to preserve the judgment. Um, but what's uh, going to be happening and on Monday is an argument that really boils down to, you know, an update on the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act that happened in 2008 and whether, you know, it protects 
these kind of punitive damages um, in awards in, in these kind of cases. Right. So basically the D.C. Circuit throws out half of the award that, Nearly, that these yeah. victims were were awarded here on the grounds that the they shouldn't have been able to receive these punitive damages. So this involves, like you said, an update to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. So I guess, can you explain, you know, why the D.C. Circuit said that um, the victims were not entitled to these punitive damages when I think um, this update in 2008 created the remedy of punitive damage in some of these terrorism victim cases? Yeah, so, you know, it's super hard to sue a, a state, right? Um, they have sovereign immunity, except for certain exceptions, which are granted. Um, so, so the Fo- Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act basically lays out when states are given that sovereign immunity and when they're not. Um, and while you know there had been a terrorism exception made um, earlier in 2008, they added um, new language that allowed for punitive damages. Um, and, and, and gave the green light for ter- these kind of terrorism victim lawsuits. Um, the question, though, is whether that new clause from 2008 can be applied to pre-2008 terrorist events like this, um, like these embassy bombings. Um, the, you know, and, and, you know, the appeals court and Sudan, you know, they, they, they pointed to a 1994 decision from the Supreme Court, um, Landgraf versus USI Film Products, which, you know, pretty laid out that victims can secure punitive damages retroactively. Um, the families, though, and the government are saying that Congress intended the punitive damages to apply retroactively. And it was really interesting because um, I, I feel like the briefs kind of gave some insight uh, into some, you know, high stakes politicking that was happening in Congress in 2008. Um, They mentioned that um, then President George W. Bush actually delayed the amendment to the law um, until it could be tweaked to protect Iraq from the imposition of punitive damages just because there was like diplomatic concerns um, at that time. It seems like this could be a huge deal because I mean, you've followed the, a lot of these um, terrorism victim cases, um, and they take decades to resolve themselves. Um, they spend a lot of time in court, going up on an appeal, going back. And so it just occurs, it just it seems to me that um, if you cut off the punitive damages point at 2008 and nothing before that is entitled, you know, no terrorist attack before that is entitled to punitive damages, that would seem to implicate a lot of different cases to the tune of like billions and billions of dollars like we've seen in this case for instance yeah well i mean the scope is fairly limited i mean there's not like a huge ton of these cases around um you know it's it's a fairly small world but obviously it's you know such high dollar value to these cases and and for the victims you know and their families it, it it means so much to them you know as you mentioned um you know, these cases take decades to get to just a judgment, just a final judgment on, you know, whether or not there there's an award, you know, and then there's usually decades further just trying to get a way to access that judgment and to get assets um, from the state to to pay that bill off. You know, I, I'm writing about this story for our access to justice wire um, just because, you know, it, it's just such a convoluted um, path in the justice system for terrorism victims. It is so hard um, to recoup damages 
Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's thorny and it's tricky on, on the side of the states as well, um, you know, and, and they, they're hard cases to, to watch, um, you know, go through, th- go through the system. Um, so I'll be interested to see kind of where the justices land on this one. Um, and, and what they add to the really, you know, kind of growing precedent on, on these cases. On Tuesday, there will be um, oral arguments in a case called United States versus Sinning Smith. Now, this one isn't quite as high dollar value as the two ones on uh, Monday, but it's no less interesting. It's an immigration case that has a lot of First Amendment implications. So basically, uh, the the government is appealing uh, a ruling out of the Ninth Circuit that invalidated a criminal law that uh, prohibits people from encouraging uh, illegal immigration. So if you've never heard of this law, like I hadn't until I this have case not. came up, <laughs> it's called it's known as Section uh, thirteen twenty four. It's been kind of sporadically enforced from time to time, but basically, it makes it illegal to encourage or induce you know a non citizen, um, you know an unauthorized. Uh, foreign national to come to enter or reside in the United States. Um, so this came up in, in the case of an immigration consultant, Evelyn Sinning Smith. Uh, prosecutors say she was kind of running this uh, like fraudulent uh, immigration consulting business where she would essentially dupe um, you know unauthorized immigrants or sometimes even uh, you know authorized immigrants into into filing these faulty immigration papers in some cases they were uh, like a labor um, a, a, a labor certification application now the problem was that you know the applications that she was encouraging her clients to file didn't actually work because the program that they would be filed under was discontinued in I think like 2001 oh so goodness. she was con- yeah, so, so according to prosecutors, she was trying to convince them that this would be their ticket to a green card or work status or what have you, even though um, there was no chance of it ever being successful. And they alleged that she knew that and willingly took um, their money from them. And so um, when they prosecuted her for you know various charges of mail fraud and filing false tax returns, they also included these charges under Section 1324 for encouraging illegal immigrations by telling their her clients to stay in the country even though she knew that they would have no actual legal recourse to do so you have to give it up to whatever young attorney like researched and found that statue um (laughs) to add to the list of charges um you know doesn't say it doesn't seem like one that you you see come up very often no, certainly not. And I, I think um, some of the parties have pointed out that there's been like a, a huge lack, uh, a, you know, a gaping hole of case law and precedent on the question of, of this. Um, it's called the encouragement provision is what they call it. But basically, the Ninth Circuit uh, reviewed, um, you know, her convictions under this Section 13 uh, 24 and, and, and struck down the law as, as unconstitutional and violative of the First Amendment, saying that, you know, it, 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 the statute, and I'm quoting from uh, Circuit Judge Wallace T- uh, Tashima here, the statute, quote, uh, potentially criminalizes the simple word spoken to a son, a wife, a parent, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a student, a client. I encourage you to stay here. Um, and so, you know, uh, the judge in that case said, that, you know, the First Amendment violation was intolerable. And now you have the government's appeal to, to the Supreme Court. So the, so the statute really doesn't... Um hinge on the passage of money it's just the encouragement well the government says in this case the fact that um it was applied to an exchange of money um which would make it 
in the government's eyes illegal is the reason why the, the lower court should not have struck down the law because even if you can make the argument under this basic reading of the statute that it maybe could be applied in some very ambiguous, vague way to, I encourage you to stay here to a family member. In this case, they say that's not even an issue because it was applied to um, this immigration consultant who was ripping people off and getting a lot of money for it and giving them faulty advice and encouraging them to stay in the country. So they say that, you know, under... Uh, you know, the the tools of statutory construction um, that judges should use when they're reviewing a potentially unconstitutional law is that they should read it in the way most favorable that, you know, would not raise these constitutional violations. And they say that um, the fact that it was applied in this case and the fact that it could be read uh, more generously than, than the Ninth Circuit read it um, is a reason why it should stand. Although, of course, you know, you have immigration groups that are saying that, of course, it's, it's, it is going to um, criminalize basic, um, you know, speech between family members in this country. Well, it'll be a busy week for the court, for sure. I think that just about does it for us today, though. Um, we'll be back next week, right, previewing two more cases, June Medical and CFPB. Yeah, those are huge blockbusters um, that will be highly anticipated by uh, by court watchers and non-court watchers alike because of their pretty big implications for, you know, ad- administrative law and also uh, abortion, uh, which tends to uh, generate a lot of controversy at the Supreme Court. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. We've mentioned it before, but we'll get into definitely more uh, details about those two cases. Great. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Yeah. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Keith Goldberg, Juan Carlos Rodriguez, and Suzanne Moniak. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.